Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nefer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation uh, with uh, Mitchell Hora from Continuum Ag down in southeast Iowa. So uh, how are things going, Mitchell? Things are good. We're done planting down here. Uh, what, May 4th is we're recording this. Done planting. Uh, we need, we're ready for more warm temperatures and get these crops really cranking. Uh, but no, things are good. A lot of exciting stuff going on. A lot of exciting topics we're going to get into here on this recording, Paul. So thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun. No problem. And uh you know, I know that, oh, about three weeks ago, there was about a, what, a one week, 10 day spell where there was pretty warm weather and then it turned cold and stayed cold. So as far as temperatures, the last few days in your area, what have you been looking at? Now we've been fine. I mean, now we're up in the sixties, you know, even close to like 70 and some sunshine. So pretty good conditions now, you know, I think we've made it through the really bad um, conditions and I'm in Southeast Iowa near Washington. Uh, we would have had a couple nights that did get below that 32 degree level, but uh, the crops were below ground. I haven't heard of anybody that's had major issues, um, you know, with anything freezing off or nothing. We did plant um, pretty much all of our soybeans and we started on corn during that warm week, uh, which would have been what April like 10th uh, that week, planted a bunch of stuff then on our farm. We're using cover crops on everything. So mm -hmm. we're, we're planting full season soybeans into a green growing cereal rye and utilizing that cereal rye to really help to avoid any adverse weather conditions and help get those, those crops up and out of the ground, make sure that they don't sit there and have cold, wet feet. And uh, so that's been working out pretty well. Um, planting those beans early and then come back and plant the corn later. And looks like it's all coming through. It just, slow you know it's slow coming but i don't know it, I, i'm still coming. confident that we made the it's right coming. decision so and actually before and typically i'll lead off with your background but i'm just curious so you, you are saying um if you have a cover crop you know when that rain comes down if you're getting rain a lot of that rain is going to be sort of i'm going to say trapped by the plant you know by the rye versus it getting into the ground and just making a muddy mess. Is, is that correct or do I have that wrong? Not quite how I'm thinking about it. So if we get a bunch of rain, that living cover crop will help to avoid crusting. So it'll help to mitigate against that rainfall impact of the raindrop hammering down on the soil, busting up soil particles. And then when those soil particles settle back together, we can cause crusting. So the, the crop helps to mitigate against some of that. But more so what I'm thinking is if we've got that seed in the ground and we have cold, wet conditions, we don't want that seed to sit there and just rot and right. be and get pythium and stuff like that, you know, and other seedling disease. So we utilize the living root to help to, to help to uh, dry out that soil okay. and uh, balance out the soil moisture. And then when things get hot and dry, then we can kill the cover crop and then it helps to lock extra moisture in. You know, helps to avoid any excess evaporation. Yeah, that makes sense because, like you say, that that living root is sucking some moisture out of the ground to live on. So yeah. it is drying it out a little bit quicker than if there was nothing there. So yeah, what I like is it's drying it out throughout the soil profile because those roots are going to be pulling moisture from throughout those upper couple of inches of soil. Most of these cover crops are still fairly small, even as 
even as we're recording this today, they're pretty small. But instead of using only evaporation to dry out the top of the soil surface, yeah. we can utilize transpiration to dry out throughout the entire soil profile and uh, and put carbon back into the ground and replace and cycle nutrients and feed our microbes and all that good stuff. Well, good, good. You know, it's uh, interesting. I am a farm CPA, but I grew up on a farm and I have uh, three farms across the country. So this is always interesting for me to learn more stuff about farming. So that's good. Well, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and get started with your background. Uh, yeah. I think you grew up in that area, but uh, let's let's give the listeners out there a uh, an idea of where you grew up, your education, and so on. That's right. Yeah, no. So um, like we said, you know, Mitchell Hoare is my name, and I'm seventh generation on my family's farm. So this year is 150 years that the Hora have been farming here in Southeast Iowa, um, specifically in Washington County. Um, my farm is with my parents. Um, in total, we manage about 700 acres, nothing crazy. I bought a, a small farm after graduating from Iowa State, a couple of years ago, and I've got degrees from there in agronomy and in ag systems technology. So got the family farm. We've been deep into these regenerative practices like no-till and cover crops for a long time. Uh, late 70s is when we started experimenting with no-till, uh, 1978. We've been using cover crops since 2013, like really on the forefront of a lot of that stuff. Um, and really just seeing where it can put dollars back in our pocket as we utilize these tools for offensive profit-driven outcomes. It's got to tie to the bottom line, environmental gains, improving water quality, mitigating carbon. Some of these things we're going to get into today, like that's all great, but it's got to pay the bills. That is priority number one, two, and three. We've got to be profitable. We're, we're running businesses here. So, um, but the main thing that I do is I'm the founder and CEO of Continuum Ag. We're a software company that helps farmers implement regenerative practices and uh, document everything that's going on, utilize machine learning to make better decisions and implement practices well, and uh, help to turn that story into these environmental outcomes or you know, helping farmers to be in position to win with all these emerging initiatives. And we're... Uh, covering 43 states and 20 countries right now. It's been awesome to just see things continue to grow. We're touching over a million acres um, as it exists here today. Just been really exciting to get more farmers on this regenerative pathway. Um, and we want to make sure that they've got the resources that they need to, to succeed. Yeah, and I, I've had a couple other podcasts dealing with, you know, carbon capture or, or farmers being paid for carbon, but everything I've seen in that whole area, you know, the amount of payment seems like it's been fairly, I'm going to say on the low side, you know, five, 10, 15, maybe $20 per acre, plus a lot of the return farmer has to wait maybe three years, five years, 10 years to really determine what that final number is. And and is that what you've been seeing out in that area exactly. too? I'm just curious. Yeah. yeah, spot on. I mean, so many of these issues and it's no wonder that, you know, 93% of farmers in the country are aware of carbon markets and less than 3% of farmers have pursued enrolling in one of these initiatives. And yeah, part of it, that, I mean, we're asking farmers to enroll in these programs at a loss 
So number yep. one, economics don't work out. Number two, the lift of data and time and effort that some of these programs are going through because they don't speak farmer language. They don't go about data collection um, in, a, in a very efficient manner. And, uh, but also, you know, it's who do you hit your wagon to? Like all this stuff is still fairly early. There's a lot of players. Who do you hit your wagon to? Who's the right one? And especially if you're signing up for a 10 year contract, uh, that's a big commitment. Yeah. And uh, so seeing things shift away from those markets, which are playing in the carbon offset space and seeing opportunities arise in the carbon insetting in the scope three space, um, specifically within carbon intensity, uh, which is what I think we're going to really dig deep. We're, into. we're definitely going to get into that. We're going there. We're going there. Yeah. And the other thing, too, that I've noticed is it seems like the farmers that like you're in your case, hey, you're doing cover crops, you are doing regenerative uh, ag and so on. You're not going to get any credit for that from these carbon places because you've already maximized your uh, your your carbon in the ground, so to speak. Is is that what you're seeing too? Not necessarily that we've maximized the carbon in the ground, but it's because of the way that these carbon offset markets are developed. Okay, so these carbon offset markets play in the voluntary carbon markets, which have been around for a couple decades. They're nothing new. They're just trying to rekindle these initiatives for agriculture. Most of the carbon offsets that are out there today come out of forestry projects, direct air capture. Um, there's inorganic carbon programs as well. There's ocean-based things. There's lots of different ways that you can earn these carbon credits. And now agriculture is just trying to play a key role. But in order to play in these voluntary carbon markets, you have to trigger things like additionality which by certain definitions means you have to have a practice change that you were doing a certain set of practices. And now because of the carbon credits, you're doing a different set of practices. And that's why early adopting farms like mine don't necessarily qualify because we already made the practice adoption. We're already at a different carbon footprint. We've already started down this path and therefore we don't trigger additionality. Yep. And yeah, just, it's not a very level playing field in my eyes. And, and it's not very focused on your actual carbon footprint, which is why I don't like it. It's privatized cost share. We can get yep. some privatized cost share for these practices, but it's not necessarily focused on your actual carbon footprint. Right. Well, let's, uh, and you know, if we were simply going to have a podcast where we're going to talk about this and we're doing a downer, you know, that wouldn't be a very fun podcast. No. But now let's, let's, let's switch over. You had mentioned the term carbon intensity with the Inflation Reduction Act that came out last year. And actually, they've already scored the cost of it is actually twice as high as they originally expected, which is not a shock to me. Imagine but, that. Uh, yeah, imagine yeah, that. Imagine that. Um, there's a new section 45Z uh, that is sort of a clean fuel credit. It starts in January of 2025. Right now it's scheduled to only go for three years. It's 25, 26, 27. But your thought, and I think a lot of others in the industry, especially in the ethanol and biofuel industry, is that there is a potential and we want to underline the potential because we still don't know the regulations. The IRS probably won't come out with regulations on this until sometime next year, but there's the potential that these ethanol plants or biodiesel or biofuel plants will qualify for some fairly large credits 
that potentially that could be passed through to the farmer in the form of an additional premium depending on a carbon intensity score. So before I dive deeper into that, why don't you explain for the listeners out there, what is a carbon intensity, how it works for corn or soybeans or whatever it might be. So I, I'm going to turn it back over to you. No, nah, it's great, Paul. Lots to unpack here. Um, and I also want to hit on like the disclaimer that you were putting in there too. We're recording this in early May, 2023. There's a lot of dust to settle within this. There's a lot that still has to happen in DC with the IRS and the Department of Treasury. Um, a lot that still has to has to be sorted. Um, but what I really like is the concepts here. The concepts of documenting the things that you do on your farm, turning that into an environmental score, like in this case, carbon intensity, being able to prove what you're doing. You got to verify it. And then having the financial structure tied to your score. Okay. That concept, documentation, very holistic, turned into a score and tie the financials to the score. So in this case, it's carbon intensity, which is in this case here, it's measured in terms of grams of CO2 equivalents per megajoule of production or per bushel. Basically looking at instead of tons of carbon, like what we've been mostly talking about. This is looking at it in terms of grams as tied to the individual uh, unit of production, the bushel or the megajoule of energy, which is how the fuels industry measures things. This carbon intensity score can be calculated using the GREET tool. That's G-R-E-E-T. It was developed by the Argonne National Lab, which is a U.S. Department of Energy lab in the Chicago area. And basically what it looks at is the environmental footprint of the fuel, in this case, ethanol or biodiesel or what, whatever that biofuel may be. And it's looking at the environmental footprint of that fuel in comparison to regular fossil fuel, gasoline and diesel fuel and stuff like that. So what we're able to do from the farm side of things is quantify the carbon intensity of the bushel. Um, and we'll use corn and focus on corn and ethanol. So corn has a standard or an average carbon intensity number of 29.1 grams of CO2 equivalents per megajoule of energy. Okay. 29.1. Ethanol has a carbon intensity that's typically, the average is around 56. I'm seeing 52 to 56. Some could be a little bit higher than that, but we'll use 56 for today. So 56 is ethanol's carbon intensity. Out of that 56, corn contributes to 29 of those points. And corn has the opportunity to actually become carbon negative, which is what we've seen on our farm. Our farm um, has a score of negative 4.4 is okay. our preliminary number. And that's due to the practices that we use, the cover crops, the no-till, the reduced synthetic fertilizer, reduced passes across the field, and therefore reduced diesel fuel usage, All of and then growing good yield as well. You still have to have productivity because this is essentially your carbon footprint per unit of production. So as you uh, as you improve your productivity and your efficiencies, you improve your carbon intensity score. And uh, yeah, our biofuel manufacturing buddies can, uh, looks like they're gonna be able to be able to turn that into some fairly substantial tax credits. 
Okay, so let's look at that credit. We have a, a you know, the, the, the ethanol plants got a score of 56. Let's say they, I think in their minimum, they have to get down to 50 before they get any credit. Is that how it works? That's how yeah. it reads today in the Inflation Reduction Act is, yeah, that the ethanol company or the biofuel manufacturer, in this case, ethanol, ethanol has to have a carbon intensity below 50 in order to start earning these credits. So if they drop below 50, what, what approximately is that credit for each point that they go below 50? Yeah. So the way that the Inflation Reduction Act currently reads is that for every carbon intensity point below 50, they'll earn two cents per point reduction per gallon. So okay. Okay. two cents per production per gallon for a maximum tax credit of a dollar per gallon if you got down to zero. Okay. So for every point reduction, you get two cents. So say you get your carbon intensity to be a score of 40, you've reduced your carbon intensity by 10. You might've reduced it by more than that, because if you were 56 and you go to 40, you actually reduced your facility by 16, but 45Z doesn't care where you started. Only care. You got to get below 50, but in from 50 to 10, you've reduced by 10 points, take those 10 points times two cents. And that would give you a 20 cent per gallon tax credit. Um, potential okay. tax rate. And again, this is potential. It's a way that it reads today. And we still have, have to uh, have the IRS come out with the final uh, okay. final rules. So that's per gallon of ethanol. Now we then need to convert it into per bushel. So, right. so a bushel of corn creates how many gallons of ethanol? It depends on the facility. But for for the podcast today, let's figure my local ethanol plant and their numbers. They can produce 2.89 gallons of ethanol per bushel of my corn. Most ethanol plants are anywhere from 2.7 to 3 gallons of ethanol per bushel. Okay, so you take your gallons per bushel times that 2 cents. So in my case, 2 cents times 2.89 is 5.78 cents per CI point reduction per bushel. I, I think for I think for purposes of this, maybe let's round it to six cents. I know that's a little bit yeah. on the high side, but let's just round make it to six. Make the math easier. Agreed. Make the math six easier. Cents, that would be so, the that'd be the top. The top and some facilities are going to be able to do that. It's yeah. definitely not out so, of the what we're saying is once the ethanol plant drops down to 50, there's no benefit to the ethanol plant, no benefit to the farmer. But once the ethanol plant starts dropping below 50, if they get to 40 or down to 30 or whatever the number is, then for every point that um, they drop below 50, it's potentially worth up to six cents per bushel to the farmer. That's correct. I mean, that's not exact, but that's sort of, just to make it sort of simple for the math. For the here. simple math. That's the top line math. What we have to find out is what's the resale value of these tax credits going to be? What's yeah. the cost of the measuring, reporting, verification? What's that going to be? Um, you know, what's the cut that the ethanol plant needs to keep yeah. versus what's the cut the farmer is going to get? But the total maximum pie, you're exactly right, up to six cents per CI point per bushel. Um, but they got to get below 50, which is yeah. probably why it's a good thing that this doesn't start until 2025. 
since most facilities are not going to be at that 50 point mark right now, they have the 2024 corn crop to get below 50 so they can start earning these credits since it's only a three-year deal. Like they need to get the act together now to start working this down. Corn is one way to do it. But the key thing here with the 45Z is what it did was it allowed for the corn to be part of the equation because the corn is part of the scope three carbon footprint of that ethanol facility with 45Z they can earn these carbon intensity reduction credits based on reducing scope one, scope two, and scope three. Which before the credits were really more, were more focused on one and two. two. Now, like you say, you bring in scope three, which allows that farmer maybe to participate in the credit the ethanol plant's going to get. That's correct. So scope one, you can reduce that with like the pipeline projects that are going on. So you can capture the CO2 that would have otherwise went into the atmosphere, compress it as a liquid, put it underground. That's how you can reduce scope one or one of the ways to do it. Um, you can reduce your scope two by utilizing more renewable energy like wind and solar. Um, you can reduce your scope three with other supply chain efficiencies, especially in looking at the carbon intensity of the corn because the farm that that ethanol company is sourcing from is part of that ethanol's carbon footprint. So that's where our focus is. It's the most direct. I, I believe it's going to be the most cost-effective way to be able to make these gains. Um, I fully anticipate that the pipelines will probably be factored in and will be built at some point as well. Yep. Uh, but we just, the op, the, we're on the clock right now, essentially. Yep. You know, we got to get this stuff worked down and uh, we've got some opportunity to do it in corn. You know, I mentioned corn's standard number is 29 and corn on my farm is negative 4.4. That's a 33 and a half point reduction right there from doing the no-till, the cover crop, the things that we're doing a big chunk and that 33 and a half points at six cents per bushel on 240 bushel corn. You're talking real money. Yeah. Yeah. That's two bucks per bushel times your, your potential two bucks to the ethanol plant. Now, not to the farmer, that's right. To the ethanol plant um, and so on. Now, also, I'm going to jump in a little bit because I think many farmers out there, they've invested in ethanol plants. They get these credits that flow through to them and they don't have enough tax liability in order to use the credits. So they're like, well, these credits really aren't worth that much. I'm not all, but some are thinking that. Well, the interesting thing with the Inflation Reduction Act is they brought in either the ethanol plant can sell the credits mm-hmm. over to somebody else that actually has a tax liability or potentially, and we still don't know, we hear maybe in the next month or so, they're going to come out with some regulations on this. There's also a way that the, the ethanol plant can actually get a direct payment yeah. from IRS or from the government. So uh, we still have to figure out those details. I'm not sure if the ethanol plant will qualify for the direct payment because there's some quirks on that. But I certainly know that they're going to be able to sell the credit yeah. over to, let's say, Berkshire Hathaway or some company that really right. owes a lot of taxes. But they're not going to get 100 cents on the dollar. Likely, they're going to get somewhere between, I'm guessing, 75, maybe up to 85 percent, somewhere in that number. Yeah. Uh, but they're going to be able to monetize that credit pretty easily. That's right. So, and yeah, a good point of clarification there that, yeah, it's the, it's the biofuel manufacturer that gets the tax credit, not necessarily the farmer. 
But in order for the biofuel manufacturer to get that credit, they need my data. So essentially how I think about this from the farm gate perspective is that the pre the quote unquote premium that I would get is actually the ethanol plant buying my data and buying my corn with my data attached because they need my data that shows that my corn is carbon negative so that they can lower their carbon intensity. And yeah, what I think our opportunity is, is to say, hey, I know that my corn is worth nearly $2 per bushel. Now I know that's not your actual cost coming in. I know that it's significantly less than that, but let's work out the math together where you can make some money on this. I can make some money on this. Um, But for the farmer, I think our position here is to make sure that we're being price makers and not just taking the lowest dollar possible. Like there's, there's real money here. And I think there's more than a big enough pie to go around again, a lot of us to settle. We'll see how it works out, but it looks like there's going to be more than enough money here for the ethanol um, companies to make a solid payday for the farmers to be able to be well compensated for their effort of implementing these practices and lowering their carbon footprint and, and documenting and proving this stuff. Like this is not going to be just really easy. No problem. Like it's going to take a lot of work with the data to prove that this is real. If you want to get paid real dollars, you got to be able to prove that what you're doing is valuable. Well, and the other indirect benefit to the farmer, maybe they're not getting directly a premium from the ethanol. Well, let's say potentially they can get a premium from the ethanol plant, but then if the ethanol plant is willing to pay that premium, that means the other consumers of corn or soybeans or whatever it might be in the area may have to increase their price to be competitive. So I I think by having that additional uh, value to the ethanol plant, it makes all of the corn in that area more valuable. Yeah. I mean, it is propping it up just like, you know, we've gone through this route before that uh, already, you know, government influence has, has influenced the ability for biofuels to compete and has, has driven up the price of commodities. Like we've already been down this road. This is just more of the same. But I think yep. you're exactly right that the my corn today, typically I sell my corn today to into the pork industry. In Washington County, Iowa, we got a lot of pigs. One of the biggest in the, one of the uh, biggest pork producing counties in the country. I got lots of options to sell my corn and soybeans for feeding pigs. But now if, if there's real dollars in a, premium for me to go a little bit further down the road to the ethanol company. Yeah. My local hog guys, how are they going to compete? And I think the opportunity there is for their supplier. So the local pork producing family, they're part of a Tyson's and JBS type of supply chain. Those guys need my low carbon grain in their supply chain in the same way that the ethanol company does to meet their carbon goals and lower their scope three carbon footprint. But what they don't have is a tax credit to pay for it. So they're going to need to figure out a different method for for uh, purchasing that grain and purchasing the story that goes with it. Um, yeah, I think the opportunity here for farmers just to make sure that you know what your data is worth, you know what you've got, make sure that you're playing your cards right, make sure that you own your data and you trust the people that you're working with to manage that data. And uh, don't be greedy in this. You know, this is all... Um, you know, new money coming in, but make sure that you're getting your fair share and uh, that you're getting an equitable cut here for the effort that you're doing. And and if the company that you typically sell to, if they 
are not going to play ball, um, you know, we might have to go to somebody else who is going to play ball and who do, who does want your grain and wants your story and is willing to compensate you for your the effort that you went through to help them to lower their carbon footprint. Okay. Now, Mitchell, the farmer that's listening to this is saying, Hey, this credit starts in 2025. This is, you know, May 3rd, May 4th of 2023. I have a year and a half before I even have to think about this. Yeah. Is that necessarily right? It, it's yes and no. Okay. So how I'm going about it is, yeah, this, the actual dollar flow here, we don't know exactly when that's going to happen. Now I put out a poll on my Twitter a couple of weeks ago, 13% of the farmers that responded to my poll already have some premium, uh, premium markets available based on data coming from their ethanol company. Now those markets are uh, at a max 10 cents per bushel. Yeah. It's yep. the best I've heard. So it's very low dollar amounts. But my point there being, there's already maybe some opportunities emerging for you to get paid for your data, for your story um, to associate with the grain. But I th- what, what I'm telling my customers that they should be doing is figure out what their actual carbon intensity score is to figure out what the value of it is. And also to figure out what's the opportunity to improve that score. So in 2025, this fully goes into play. We've got to be ready to rock by then. But that 2025 biofuel is being produced with 2024 crops. Yep. Those 2024 yep. crops are using are being influenced by practices that are being deployed in September and October of this year, namely the fertilizer, the tillage, the cover crop. Like it's your it's your decisions and your management that you're going to be doing yet in 2023 that's going to influence your potential to earn credit on that 2024 crop. So there, therefore the opportunity to really dig into this and be paying attention and to get your score or at least get a good understanding of how to reduce your score. Uh, and most importantly, document everything that you're doing because you're so going to have to prove it. The only way you're going to get paid is if you can prove what you did. So let's dig into that a little bit. So on your farm, you've gone from a 29.1 down to a negative four. So about a 33 point reduction. What drives that? Is it cover crop? Is it no-till? Is it fertilizer? What of that 33 points, how many points are for each of those practices in on average? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so it's county by county. So it is, yeah, there are some nuances to it. And, uh, and what we've done within our software topsoil is that we've automated the whole process for our customers. So you can go in and plug in your farm management data and, uh, we are, we're charging for it, but we've automated the process of getting you that score and, uh, and having it nuanced to your, to your operation. Now, uh, cover crop is number one, adds you a lot of points going to no till or reduce till is good as well growing more yield is actually a big driver. So um, that improves your denominator, you know, so we got to lower the numerator, the carbon footprint going in, but we can improve the denominator to spread that carbon or spread those inputs across more output. And that of course helps to improve the score per bushel. Um, other, other key things in terms of the prioritization beyond the cover crop, no-till yield. Next is nitrogen fertilizer and then diesel fuel. And then also it factors in phosphorus and potassium fertilizer, lime, 
uh, herbicide, insecticide, diesel fuel, gasoline, electricity, LP, um, manure. Like it's pretty holistic, a lot of stuff. And, um, and uh, it is important to, to understand those nuances of how to optimize that score but really it's about efficiencies and implementing these regenerative practices. But yeah, influenced by the county by county nuances. And, um, but you can earn a lot of points real quick. And I think they can really add up. So let's, let's just maybe focus in on cover crops. So in your county, it appears that a cover crop may have more value than let's say in North Dakota, or perhaps in Alabama. Why would there be differences there for for that? That's correct. So in in my county, Washington County, Iowa, when I add cover crop, it gains me like something like 20 carbon intensity points, if I remember right. It's a big chunk. Yeah. 20 CI points at that six cents. I mean, that you're talking real money for planting that cover crop. So um, it's a big one. Now it's different county by county because of how the cover crop functions and what those in the carbon models behind the tool. So in Southeast Iowa, I have winter where my cover crop is basically dormant over the winter and not drawing down carbon, but I have more days to draw down carbon than say that farmer up in North Dakota, who's frozen up even longer than I am. I'm able to utilize more growing days in the fall and some more growing days in the spring. And therefore I get a better credit uh, for my area here. As you work further South though, where they are, where they don't freeze up, they're not only able to draw down carbon every day out of the year, but they're also losing carbon every day out of the year because those microbes are always working, always cycling. That soil never really slows down. So that's why there's a, a little bit of some nuance and some balance to this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it also factors in rainfall, not just temperature, but rainfall, soil types, uh, you know, just those other factors that are going to influence your ability to build up your soil carbon. Now, the GREET tool today, again, came from the Department of Energy, not necessarily from the ag guys. Okay. So it's right. pretty basic. It's just cover crop or no cover crop. I fully anticipate that we're going to have to have a lot more robustness built into the tool over time, especially if we're going to scale it to other verticals outside of fuel, especially if we're going to scale to other countries outside of the US. Um, yep. These tools are going to have to be a lot more robust. So what I'm you know, encouraging our customers to do is document all the nitty gritty details, not just that, yeah, I planted a cover crop, but document the planting date, the rate, the species, the termination date. Um, you know, we're doing research on our own farm, looking at the actual cover crop biomass, monitoring the soil data as well, and our soil carbon numbers. A um, lot of research, of course, being done throughout the industry. I think it's just key to make sure that we're really documenting the nitty gritty details. Um, and also keep in mind that this score is going to be different for every field in every year. So yeah. you got to document this on every field every year because at a minimum, every field is going to have a slightly different yield. You right. Know? So therefore, but you know, just based on that alone, you're going to have a different carbon footprint for every single field. I would anticipate that it'll end up being you don't keep all these grains segregated. 
all the grain from your, you know, 14 different fields, it's all going to get aggregated together at one bin site. And, uh, and then you, you'll have one weighted average score coming off your farm. Yep. Well, and I could see even on the export market, you know, the EU is very, very concerned about carbon and, you know, if you're exporting over to EU or maybe Japan or something, some of these countries where they're more particular, they're going to want to see that documentation. They're going to be willing to pay that premium for that documentation. That's right. And that's why I really like this whole concept. Okay. So 45Z and the fuel side is the focus here today because of the Inflation Reduction Act and these tax credits and the, the the outside influences on the business model are there. And what I like is it's basically the proof of concept. Here's a business model, here's a scoring system, and uh, you know it basically gets the market going and gets off the ground. And it's gonna force everyone else to figure out how to compete. Now, I like this angle to carbon and to other environmental outcomes too, water quality, biodiversity, water usage, like, it's the same type of practices that are going to influence those outcomes as well. And the companies are interested in improving their impact on those parameters also. Um, and maybe there'll be some market opportunities that will arise for those type of outcomes, not just be, you know, pigeonholed into just carbon and carbon only, you know? So, but it's the concept here that remains the same. Documenting the practices that you're doing, understand what how that turns into a environmental outcome, make sure that you can verify and uh, and make sure that you're getting an equitable share in the value of that environmental outcome. Because at a minimum, these companies are going to utilize that data to market and to get um, get market access and shelf space or um, you know being able to connect with their shareholders and with their customers. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, there's a marketing value to this. Yeah. But there likely can be some other uh, real tangible dollar value to them meeting these goals as well. And farmers were part of basically every single supply chain. So even if it's not going to be ethanol or biodiesel, that's going to cause this to really um, expand in your neck of the woods. It's the concept here that we're in every single supply chain. And uh, so as companies have to really get aggressive at reducing their carbon footprint and meeting their sustainability goals, they're going to have to look within their supply chain because those carbon offsets are not there for them yep. to be able to uh, to meet their goals. Okay. Well, and I think, uh, Mitchell, we could probably continue to talk about this, but uh, we're getting close to the end of the podcast. And I have a feeling that you and I will definitely uh, do a follow-up uh, podcast here in another few months as we get start to get more and more details on this, but uh, I always like try to ask a few questions. Uh, first, uh, who was your mentor in, in this whole process? Yeah, um, I've had multiple mentors throughout all of this. I started the company when I was 20 years old. I'm 28 today. I got a lot to learn and still plenty wet behind the ears, that's for sure. Um, one of my key mentors um, that I like to note on this is Dave Stamp. Uh, Dave, um, very experienced businessman, helped me to develop the name Continuum Ag and the initial business concepts back in the summer of 2014. A key thing that he taught me with this is that you've got to get the first check. And I think that that will be what uh, continues to drive our conversations here. We Today, we've been talking about the, the f- concepts 
with the best information that's out there and that's available to us today. But this really doesn't become real until the dollars start flowing. We got to get the first check. And um, that's when this becomes very real. But hopefully everybody listening, you know, if you're listening to this, you're on the forefront already. This is very new. Hardly anybody knows about it. It's been very, very hush hush. But it is incredibly important to be up on this early because it could have huge financial impact on your family operation. Now you're a farmer, you do continue in ag. Um, do you have any hobbies or do you have any time for hobbies? Yeah, not a lot of time for hobbies. I've found that I'm a entrepreneur. I mean, I like building businesses. I like working on this stuff. I've always been an entrepreneur. I just didn't know it when I was young, but really enjoy being outside, um, you know, out, uh, out on the lake over the summer. I've got a daughter and another, um, another child on the way coming in June. So I'll be very busy with family stuff. Um, yep. here this summer, but, but being outside, being on the farm, out fishing, out, uh, you know, out on the lake um, and being, you know, young and hanging out with wife and friends and, um, but yep. especially being out, being outside. Yeah. And then uh, what keeps you up at night? The biggest thing, uh, you know, especially when it, not much keeps me up at night. Cause I sleep like a baby. We go real hard all day. And by the time my head hits the pillow, I am out. But especially when it comes to this, what I'm most worried about is making sure that farmers get the equitable share within this stuff and that yeah. they don't just become a price taker once again, that we don't just get squeezed out of these opportunities. Um, I just think that the pie is going to be big enough and there's enough, it, there's going to be enough dollars to go around. I really think that the math works out that that can be the case, that there's plenty of dollars to be had here. It's real. It's legit. That's why I like it. It's not greenwashing. This is real stuff and we can prove it and uh, can actually reduce our carbon footprint. We can actually improve our soil health. We can actually improve these environmental outcomes. Um, and uh, and if, with nothing else, that that's a great marketing story and a good advocacy thing for renewable fuels and for American agriculture. So that's what I like about it. I just want to make sure that farmers are aware, they're paying attention, and uh, that with any of these conservation initiatives, I hope it's the family farm that is the ultimate winner. So if, if people are interested in, in following up with you on this, how, how would they go about contacting you also, I think you have an event coming up here in about a month. Uh, why don't you go through that too? Yeah, a bunch of different stuff. So um, we're all over social media um, at Continuum Ag. Um, you can find me as well, Mitchell Hora. Our website is continuum.ag. If you want to get your carbon intensity score, you can do that with our software. You can find that at topsoil.ag. Um, we've got a bunch of webinars on our YouTube page or webinars on our YouTube page. We're hosting webinars. We're talking about this a lot. Um, the Topsoil podcast has some of my materials on this. And yeah, our event is June 5th. It's called the Topsoil Summit. And uh, get on my email list or check out our website and you can get the info for that. But Topsoil Summit here in Southeast Iowa, this will be our fifth annual um, summer conference and field day. We'll be doing some stuff out at the farm and have a couple hundred people here all uh, working on this stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, just a lot of things happening. It's just important to pay attention 
organize your data and be ready for these opportunities as they arise. Okay. Well, good. Well, Mitchell, thanks a lot for taking time out of your day. Um, like I say, this has been very informative for me, and I, I think the listeners out there have definitely learned something. But uh, as we've said multiple times, this is still being developed. We don't know what the final answer is, but I, I think we're, I'm going to use the word very cautiously optimistic. I, I think those are the words I'm going to use. That's a good way to put it. Cautiously optimistic, but to me, my approach here is it's such a big potential opportunity that I can't not go after it. Yeah. And, I, and it's the concept, like the concept behind it is absolutely where this is going. Of I've said it multiple times, documenting, turn that into an environmental outcome, being able to tell that story in the supply chain and, and have the value tied to the, the commodity value or tied to the product. That is absolutely where this goes. And what I'm trying to go about with our company is that we're doing these things and helping our farmers go into the system for very low dollar amounts yeah. to make sure that the focus is build your soil health. These practices can pay for themselves on their own. That's the real win. And that's the long term because who knows what's going to happen from a tax code perspective, from right. a environmental perspective, from a company perspective. But farming smart, utilizing these practices, building soil health, working with Mother Nature, not against her, that is eternal right there. So um, that's really got to be the focus. And Hopefully these hopefully these programs will work out. I think uh, I think we'll all be able to make make some nice money if they do. Well, again, Mitchell, thank you very much. This has been the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer, and I am Paul Neifer, your host, signing off. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years. 10 years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know Robo Agri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Robo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Robo Agri Finance.